0: Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, writer and journalist Jane Sullivan speaks to two-time Man Booker Prize nominee, UK author Andrew O'Hagan, about Andrew's new novel, Mayflies. Mayflies opens in the summer of 1986 in a small Scottish town and is a memorial to youth's euphorias and everyday tragedy. Of course, as this event was recorded live and over the internet, there's been some effect on the sound quality of the episode. But now, over to the host of the event, Reading's Programming Manager, Chris Gordon.
1: I want to introduce you to one of my favourite people in the whole and entire place of Melbourne, uh, Jane Sullivan. I read her articles on the paper religiously. She's a literary editor. She's been writing for years and years and years, and she's written Many, many books, her last book being Storytime. So, again, you can see how appropriate it is that we acknowledge and respect our storytellers. Dear Jane, I know you have such a treat tonight to be speaking to Andrew O'Hagan all the way over in London where he's living. It's very early in the morning for a writer, a Scottish writer in particular, to be up and about. So we're incredibly privileged and lucky to have him. Andrew and Jane, at the moment, if we were in a hall, people would be shuffling around and I would just be saying at this stage, welcome everyone, and there would be a tremendous round of applause. There might be some people, I imagine, like Anthony Yark or someone, that would stand on his chair and cheer and I would have to say, get down, Anthony, behave yourself, behave yourself. (laughs) We're here to hear Andrew and Jane. Over to you, my friend, Jane,
2: over to you. Thank you, Christine. That was a lovely introduction. I'm really, really thrilled to be here today. And I'm particularly thrilled that it's Andrew O'Hagan I'm I'm going to be talking to from lockdown Melbourne all the way to to London. And uh, Andrew, I can't wait to get talking to you. But first of all, I should tell you a little bit about Andrew, and it's going to be not so much a biography as as a personal account, because I first saw Andrew on a stage at the Melbourne Writers Festival many years ago and it was when his book Personality came out. And I was just telling Andrew before, I grew up in London and I can remember the characters that book was based on. There was a young girl, a singer, called Lena Zaveroni from Scotland who became a kind of um, big hit in the young talent time world. And there was a sort of horrible, oleaginous quiz master, Huey Green, who was a sort of Spengali behind the scenes. And um, Andrew's book was fiction, but it was very closely uh, linked to these particular characters. And, and I loved the book so much and I couldn't wait to meet him. But I had to wait a few years. And in the meantime, I've been avidly reading his journalism. You may know he writes a lot for the, the London Review of Books and other publications. And he's written some terrific long-form journalism expose All sorts of um, things from burning buildings that shouldn't have burned to um, little boys who were murdered by older boys and what that means and context of growing up in working class Scotland and a number of other things. But what I'm going to talk to Andrew about tonight, particularly, is his new novel, Mayflies. And uh, it's a wonderful book. I recommend it to you very thoroughly. It's about life and death. A lot of people say, not that, oh, my novel's about life and death. And, and when you read it, it isn't at all. But this book really is about those, those two things. It's that huge and it's also that personal. And, uh, Andrew, I want to start by asking you about your title, Mayflies. I went to um, look it up. And um, this is what I read about mayflies. After the lava stage... Female mayflies usually live less than five minutes, while males can live a whopping two days. But they don't waste a single minute spending that short period of time mating and reproducing. And I thought, well, uh, that's probably the kind of lifestyle that many young men might aspire to, a short life but a happy life with lots of mating and reproducing. Um, So, Andrew, uh, tell us a little bit about why you chose that title, which will also lead us into um, just really what the book's about.
3: Hi, Jane. Well, titles for authors sometimes come immediately and they're there on the manuscript from the beginning. There have been occasions when I have typed the name of the book on almost day one, and it stayed there through the many, many drafts uh, all the way to publication. That's quite rare though. Um, I'd say that's maybe a third uh, uh, in terms of my books, uh, of my experience. This one, uh, it came after quite a lot of fussing with other titles and just not quite feeling that the title was right. I wanted an image that would carry the ephemerality of youth, in um, the way that you've uh, that, that definition describes. I hadn't quite bargained on females having to cop it so early, and that wasn't such a happy <laughs> aspect of the title's meaning, but um, the idea that light, all of life could be contained in a day or two uh, seemed to me to go right to the core of what I was trying to write about with this book, trying to get all the joy and belief and optimism and uh, commonality of a young group of boys in Scotland in the 1980s, heading towards the sun, running towards the horizon, going for an amazing weekend at a festival in Manchester, cobbling together all their money, all their resources, and all their jokes to get through this two days of wonder. And I thought, if I could get that down um, in the ephemerality of it, but also the tremendous excitement and the reality of it then, um, because I knew that 30 years later, a call was going to come for one of those boys. Um, and it was going to be desperate, and it was going to begin to test the bonds that had existed in youth. And we all have friends, hopefully, if we're lucky, some of whom we carry through our lives, but what does it mean to have a friendship like that was really the the core of this for me, Jane. You know, um, the theme was obvious from the beginning that um, romantic love gets all the big headlines, it gets all the Oscars, all the great love songs, you know, but actually a special place in the heart for all of us is our really deep friendships. And I wanted to write a book that you would grab, hopefully, as a kind of totemic statement about what it's like to live in the world and have friends and depend on them Mm. right to the end.
2: Yeah, um, I I love that uh, that you that weekend in Manchester that you refer to, and uh, where the the little band of friends go down, and they they run complete riot for a weekend, and uh, they got everything carefully worked out except little details like where they're actually going to to uh, sleep. I mean that's a, that's a trivial thing, isn't it? And uh, all the the. 80s post punk bands and I, I must admit I got onto YouTube and excuse me that's my cat's tail
3: <laughs>
2: I got onto YouTube and um and uh, I, I had a, a good look at some of those bands like New Order and, and uh, the others and, and did a little bop along. And it's great to, to see them again, I must say. There's great music from that time. And that's obviously your youth you're talking about. And I did read that this story is actually based on a true story in the sense that there was a, a very good friend of yours. You did go for a weekend like this and you did have this exuberant time. So can you tell us a
3: bit about that? Those or twice in a professional writer's career they will write something that is absolutely straight from their own autobiography. And this was that occasion for me, that Mayflies, from the beginning, was unashamedly reliant on uh, my own experience of growing up in the west coast of Scotland. I mean, it almost felt like a sort of necessity to get as much reality or as much actual experience into the book as possible. In a sense, it made it ring truer and truer and make this sort of drama of it more compelling. I remember going to see Norman Mailer once, uh, when I was young, uh, in Provincetown, uh, in Cape Cod. Uh, for the Paris Review, they sent me to interview him, and I spent three days with, with uh, Mailer, and I was talking to him about his non-fiction novel, uh, The Executioner's Song, which is, you know, I mean, everything in it is, as it were, from life. And yet it's a novel. It has the pace and the feel and the grandeur of a novel. As a piece of storytelling, it has the interiority, if you like, of a novel.
0: And he said, Mm
3: -hmm. well, it was a wonderful experiment because actually I found that that interiority increased the more true I made the story. And that the the techniques of fiction allow for that if you bend the rules and push the parameters, which is something I've always felt it very natural to do. I've written Mm long-form journalism, that has, as it were, the atmosphere of fiction, you might say. And I've written fiction that has the atmosphere of news. So I'm interested in bending the rules and the parameters between these different categories. And it felt with this book that the truer I could let it be, um, the more volume, the more of what Proust called ascending power it would have, that it would rise. And for me, that's what it was all about. Um, these are technical questions very often for a writer, but the effect in the end is just, is it, um, is it a book you can love or not? Mm. That's what oh, it's I think uh,
2: I'm, I'm unequivocally on the side of those who think it's a book you can love, certainly. Um, tell me a bit about your, your fictional friend in the book is, is, is Tully, and he's a friend of Jimmy. And your real friend I was a guy called Keith Martin. And you were in a band with Keith, weren't you? Can you tell us about that?
3: Yes, not the most glorious point in my entire career so far, but it was a great (laughs) laugh. Um, I shook a tambourine, very, you know, importantly, obviously, (laughs) in a band called The Big Gun in the 1980s. And we had a moment of uh, great success, which was the legendary BBC One DJ, John Peel, who I'm sure many of the listeners will recognize his name. Oh, He's I a, used to worship John Peel growing up in England. Yeah, I mean, he was a wonderful man, taken from as too young, and he was a great um, aficionado of independent music, of punk music, of reggae, of, of all sorts of if you like interesting and original uh, music. And he um, he played our single on his show. We couldn't believe it. We oh. only ever had one single, and the image you didn't did, we warned. You were just listening, and then it came and up. We knew from the we, we were so badgering the producer, a wonderful man called John Walters, that uh, would you play it, would you play it? We just put the single out ourselves. Mm. There was no question about record company or PR or anything like that. <laughs> I mean, we practically recorded it in our bedroom. And um, it, was, it was in a little studio, actually. And we sent it off um, in hopes that it would be played by him. And it was. And I'll never forget the excitement among the boys in the West Coast of Scotland. I mean, imagine the scene. You know working yeah. class boys on a housing estate 25 miles from glasgow orange sodium lights all down the streets a drich, uh, scottish winter and on pounding out of your radio stack system comes your song played by the legendary dj we were punching the air and grabbing onto each other with excitement and that was i feel like the spirit of this, not the first half of this novel, at least. Yeah,
2: it's it's so exuberant, it's so cool of, of that. that yeah.
3: Yeah, Tell me, it. you
2: know the, mu- the music aspect of it, which is very important to these boys. What what the, the highlight for them is to go down to the record shop and buy the latest record of of um, yeah. whoever the favourite band is. You know that that's the big thing, and then they meet other people in the record shop who have the same enthusiasms, or they have big arguments with those who disagree. What is so important about music, do you think, to to young
3: young men? Well, the first thing is. You say Jane is that 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 thing you're describing is, to my daughter who's 16 sounds prehistoric <laughs> the idea, you know I mean she wants to listen to Beyonce's new track she hits a button on her uh, smartphone and she's listening to it through her earphone. Yeah, it's all too three. easy
2: these days isn't
3: it? <laughs> three, three seconds would be a wait you know but for us I mean I described to my daughter only recently that when I wanted to buy the Smith's first single I had to get out of bed Get dressed, walk to the railway station in the west coast of Scotland called Cool Winning, buy a ticket, get on the train, go for 40 minutes, get to Glasgow, walk up to Renfield Street, go into a record shop, buy the single, do all that journey all the way back home, walk into my house and put it onto my uh, record player and play the single. That was just what happened. And she said, You're making it up. (laughs) I love it. To listen to a song, I said, Believe me, darling, that's how you live. Yeah. She said, looked at me like she was looking at somebody from the Neolithic period, which she more or less is, obviously. <laughs>
2: And the other thing is that you 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 were in a sense you were escaping and rebelling against your um, your life growing up in that kind of world, weren't you? And your character Jimmy and your character Tully in a way, they're both escaping from their lives, from the dead end, the, the unemployment and problems no. with their dads and so on. Is, is this the way they get away? what's again, what's so important about this escape, this living in the moment?
3: It takes a few decades, I think, for all of us as we go through our lives to realise that the period of our youth was a generation, you know, for years, it was mm-hmm. just you know, that, that weird period uh, between the 70s and the 90s, you know, but the <laughs> 80s now begins to look like uh, a real generation. Our fathers met the men that they knew in national service in the UK. I mean, they mm. had military training, they had a view of life that was industrial. And it was a kind of post-war experience. Um, and our children, of course, their experience isn't completely reflected on the internet. They meet their friends in chat rooms. They, you know, they experience culture through streaming. And, but there's something in the middle, and it's a generation uh, who met each other at bus stops and, and youth clubs and in the record shops that I mentioned. And you had to actually walk around to people's houses and whistle up at the window if you wanted to see them. And that whole world now is a kind of what I think of as a kind of post-punk or Thatcherite generation in the UK where we we were full of a kind of political resistance. The times were changing, not just because of technology, but the politics were rough. Uh, Mm Working-class life was being torn asunder then. We hated it. We resisted it. We were in CND. We wanted to ban the bomb. There's a tremendous sense of uh, defining yourself and your generation through... Political action and the music that you love, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that that generation hadn't had, for my money, uh, the novels quite that it deserves. You know, and maybe now uh, we're beginning to see them. Certainly, Mayflies is planted right at the centre of that experience. It surely, whether we're in Australia or Japan or America or the UK, each novel published has a kind of indigenous culture with it. It brings with it uh, a series of Political and cultural facts. Every novel has that. And uh, in a sense, we want more and more of the true Indigenous experience to be there Mm. in our uh, literary culture. And for me, part of that is that working class life in Scotland didn't produce a lot of working class novels for a long time. And then suddenly, we're in a period when uh, it's happening a lot more. You know, it's healthier
2: seem to need that distance it's funny too because that generation hasn't got a name
3: has it it's just post-punk whatever that means i mean it'll be interesting to see how history treats of that period because it actually was it was the hinge if you like between that post-war generation as i say national service workers also and 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 the internet generation You know, that we we didn't have smartphones. I mean, the knob was full of people sort of trying to meet at bus stops and failing or turning yeah. up and uh, unexpected uh, in each other's lives. That's what it was like. The whole nature of reality in that way has been altered by the technology that we now take for granted. You know, my daughter's going to school, I'll probably get three or four texts on her way to school if there's any emergency or even a half thought in her head. Mm. It will be communicated to us and... Our whole experience of how, even what we're doing now, this would have seemed like something out of Joe 90.
2: Yeah. Um, some things exactly. haven't changed, though. I, I know your characters are always talking to each other, you know, they're quoting from from movies and and, uh, and so on, and they, they'll have a whole conversation just in quotes from, you know, Scorsese movies or whatever.
0: Yeah. And
2: my son, will, when he was growing up, he'd have conversations with his friend and they'd be entirely quotes from The Simpsons. So the same mm. thing happens. It's just this different cultural uh, things that they, they draw from.
3: Yeah. I think that was different. I do think my my mother who loved music and absolutely adored movie stars. I mean, she, she, she used to do her hair like Doris Day. She would talk about Lee Remick, you know, she was, she thought that Cary Grant was the, the world's most perfect being. And yet she didn't quote movies at you in the way that my generation did. I mean, we were absolutely soaked in the smart things that were said in movies and in songs, you know, and the book's full of that. I can, it takes it for granted that it can just throw you know, like a ball thrown back and forward between the boys, these references. And that's very much taken from life too. Mm,
2: Yeah. I guess we should move on to the second part of the book, which is very different. And as you say, it's 30 years later and Jimmy gets a call from his old friend Tully. And um, we're not going to give anything away here by saying that Tully is dying of cancer. And Mm. it's a question of how they're going to deal with that and Tully wants to pick his own time and his own place uh, when he goes, but there's a conflict over that and he wants Jimmy to help him. So that's a huge thing to ask of someone, even your best friend, isn't it? And again, that's something that you have direct experience of.
3: Well, you know, uh, I've always been interested as a writer in uh, what does life amount to in the end? I mean, it's not just a question of, you know we had a childhood and then we had middle years and then we got old and i don't really see the book as two halves presented it if you like uh, as two distinct periods but actually mm. all our lives in the end are a totality even if your life was uh, tragically only 12 years long it is a totality in itself it's cut short but yet we in a sense have to train ourselves to think well it was a life though and mm. uh, My friend Keith Martin died in his early fifties. And of course we felt it was a terribly foreshortened life. He was, he was that guy. He was the front man. He was the lead singer. He was the the highest cheekbones in Scotland. He was the cheekiest (laughs) person I've ever met. He was the leader and yet he died young. But as a writer, I had to train myself to start thinking about his life as a totality too. That Mm. this is the time he had. So let's honor that was my task in a way. The book had to show that totality has been two distinct phases really. The childhood, which seemed so full of hope and optimism, and the second half, it was full of a fear and trepidation about how it would conclude, mm. you know? And in the book, Tully, he relies on those old bonds of childhood friendship to see him through to the end. And that's something that, you know, women might say that's a thing men do. You know, that they sort of make these promises to each other and these, they have these expectations of each other that they carry through into adulthood, that's maybe true. And it's certainly something that's raised in the book. The book is full of little debates, really. Yeah. About, mm. They have wives. They have people that are in love with, you know, and they depend on them in a whole romantic way. And then, in the, the
2: case adult, of Tully, it's particularly difficult because his wife opposes what he wants to do. She just his wants... wife
3: doesn't believe in assisted yeah. dying. And the mm. whole moral conundrum of the book, really, is about what is it right to do mm. for your mm. friend? Yeah. You know, what is the responsibility that comes with deep friendship, because it's not all just joy and you, they have that, and that's a foundation mm-hmm. thing for them, but it's not just that, what happens when you're in your 50s and life comes hitting hard, it comes yeah. threatening yeah. to an end, and I think that for these men, uh, in a way, that what I wanted to do was invite the audience into their moral difficulty, I think I love reading books where you really feel the grain of lived experience and I think that the decision facing these guys is something that we can all identify with it could happen to any of us tomorrow
2: Absolutely yeah I think we all we all we're going to go through something like this at some stage in our lives yeah um, when you were writing it, did, did you find a difficulty in keeping a balance between the humour and the pathos? Because, the, I mean, there are moments when you want to laugh, there are moments when you want to cry, and sometimes it's almost in the same sentence. Um, I think how, how, how did
3: you do yeah, that? Really, really, I mean, maybe it's a, I could argue that it's a sort of Scottish thing. I mean, even in our <laughs> conversation, we'll go between laughter and tears in this conversation, and that's just the way... Uh, life seems naturally to occur to me. You know, I grew up with people who had enormous difficulties to cope with. Um, Sometimes people had alcoholism, they had poverty, they had abandonment. There was a lot of that in uh, my childhood, but yet there was also incredible comedy. Mm -hmm. Coming from the same quarter, some of the most afflicted people were the funniest in my childhood. That was a very Glaswegian thing. You know, (laughs) they they endured their difficulties with a sort of, uh, with a sense of, the absurd a sense of laughter and that's very much in this book i think and mm-hmm. i have to admit to you it's sort of in me you know i it was a difficult book to write in that um i was still mourning the loss of my friend as i was writing it mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. but i was also still laughing at his jokes and those two things can live side by side not only yeah. in a novel but i think in your life we all know that um the The saddest things, even up to the last moment, can disclose uh, the deep-seated humanity and comedy of a person. And my friend in life, Keith, was keeping us going with laughter, right to the end of his life. And I think the novel had to find a solution for the roundedness of our lives. And the roundedness means that it's not all just tragedy and it's not all just comedy, that uh, for good or for ill, we're in for both rights.
2: Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yes, that that certainly comes through. Um, And uh, I think you said, I read somewhere that you said that um, Tully is teaching other people how to die.
3: Well, that was the great shock, really. If you've grown up with somebody and they were into the bands you were into, and they loved the the books and the poetry and the films that you loved, that you had a real shared culture, you know, not Mm -hmm. just that you had similar hobbies, but you actually, that your language was full of the same references, that kind of thing, you know, and that when some, when you needed something, you just automatically dialed a number and there was none of that throat clearing or setting the stage or feeling embarrassed or sort of not wanting to impose. You were just with them automatically. Mm -hmm. Even after a year or two, if I hadn't seen my best friend, we'd just click right back into the rhythm of how Mm -hmm. we work together. Um, And for me, um, the real task was was about capturing that and you know somehow getting that uh, onto the page you know you don't know in the end if it can really make it into a story if that essence yeah can yeah can trans- translate but, um i felt i felt that it did um in this case anyway i felt very natural about it
2: Mm -hmm. and what about the uh, a lot of this book is about having a good time and I was thinking as I was reading that we actually underestimate the importance of having a good time you know we think it's just something frivolous that you do when you've done all the work you know you can relax and just and just enjoy yourself a bit but the more I read it the more I had the feeling that having a good time is really absolutely essential to life it's one of the key things we have to do
3: I think that one of I've been really overwhelmed and struck by the response to this book I mean the Mm -hmm. way that people reading it and the numbers and the way they're writing about it I mean I think it's it's a new tone for Mm -hmm. me and um and part of that is to do with I think what you've mentioned um that it's about having a good time and also uh when the good times are over what's left and what do you do with your life how does the good times embolden you for life in a way that it's not just wasted time or famous phrase a misspent youth it's actually quite a well-spent youth Mm. to have a good time yeah, and the, ma- the mofies
2: have
3: got the right idea, haven't they? <laughs> <laughs> the mofies have the right idea, do all while you're here, do all while you can, because mm. we are ephemeral and it's over. But mm. it's very important, this question of yours, Lynn, because I think that a good time is not often enough mentioned in relation to literature. We think of it as a thing that we yeah. relate to in song or in film, but not in literature. There could almost be a, an invisible heading over a lot of contemporary writing called having a bad time. Yes, that's you know? so I mean, very true, yeah. I'm not so much interested in that at this point. I want to show uh, how this enormous creativity, not only, not only young people. I mean, I can, I can imagine a novel I would write, which is, as it was set in a care home, where the Mayflies, who are all in their 80s, are living out their day. And, you know, my book, The Illuminations, indeed has some time in a sheltered housing complex yeah. where mm-hmm. tremendously vivid elderly people, full of a sense of life's, uh values you know as the sun goes down Mm. and for me it's really about age it's about attitude you know the book tries to demonstrate that uh, a well-used a well-deployed imagination in relation to other human beings certain amount of tolerance and sympathy and openness to others can indeed save your life or build your life as it does for these boys in the end they have a tremendous challenge how do they bring it to a close? But that's for the readers to discover. Yeah, was, we'll leave
2: the readers I mean, to find that out. Yeah. Yeah, it was just um, for me
3: as a challenge the whole way.
2: Yeah, I, I I wanted to ask you a little bit about um you you talked about uh, writing you know a true story and how fiction blends a little bit with nonfiction in that way and the narrative skills of the novel and so on, and I wondered how when you how you made the transition from journalism to fiction and how how that worked for you.
3: It happened for me very early. I was a young editor at the London Review of Books, and I mean I was 21 or 22 and you know I I knew that I wanted to write, that I'd been writing privately, Um, but I don't think I quite had my subject until I started writing essays for that magazine, and I could hear my voice start starting to sort of become clearer, and a piece that you mentioned in your introduction, writing about the uh the violence perpetrated by young people on other young people Mm -hmm. that was stimulated Mm -hmm. by a case that many i'm sure will remember the death of a young liverpool toddler called jamie bulger um, 1993 and i followed that case and wrote about that case very closely and it kind of delivered me into a world of storytelling it made me travel back into my own experience identified with the boys accused of that murder to some extent And it's always a kind of incendiary, wild thought in any culture to say I I identify with the perpetrators. People Mm, because they were
2: being very much demonised
3: in the press at the time, weren't they? That the boys people were calling for their executions. Mm. These two ten-year-old boys, and I made the argument. I said, "Wait a minute, guys! There's three victims in this case: the boy who was murdered and the two boys who murdered him." And that caused Mm. wholly, you know, disorder when I said that at the time, but. It gave me, in a sense, uh, a conviction about storytelling, which is that sometimes our stories come from the unexpected place. We need to cultivate mm-hmm. a bit of ambiguity in our lives to get to the stories we need. That's to say, people who believe too much in what they believe aren't necessarily good storytellers because they load the dice in favour of the yeah. argument. You understand, yeah. Whereas I think good storytellers are open to um, equal and opposite points of view. There's a wonderful line of F. Scott Fitzgerald where he says the, the, sign, the, the sign of a literary intelligence is that they can hold two opposite views in their mind at the same time equally and still mm-hmm. function. Yeah. I remember reading that and thinking, exactly. It's my job as a novelist to suggest possibilities to my readers. Their intelligence will do the maths. You know, People who insist and who lecture at the readers are doing a bad job in my view. Um, And even with a a novel like Mayflies, I'll set it out and give the characters life, I'll breathe as much life onto the page as I can, but I know that ultimately the moral work, the difficult work about the rights and wrongs of what's going on, will happen inside the imagination of the reader.
2: I'm I'm, uh, going to open up a bit to questions from the audience and I've got one here from Scott, so I'll read that out to you. Um, Question for Andrew. When writing this book about his youth, or I should say when you wrote this book about your youth, did you find yourself travelling home more often and if you did, how important was this in terms of recollection and creation of
3: ideas? That's a good question because I think it's. I, I would file that one under research. I think that that not to put too fine a point on it, but the real difference between a professional writer and a non-professional writer is that a professional writer makes notes and does research. So if you don't have your notes, you can't properly get the sentences onto the page. You know. Uh, so the question was, suggestion, you would go back. I mean, I went back because I want to know exactly how the light ar- arrives in the street at that time of day. What time do the street lamps come on? Because if you get boys inside a bedroom listening to radio station in 1986, and you know you've got to know exactly what the geography is, where the lights coming in the window, where the where the mother would or father might have bought the shopping, where they have all been in their lives, what is the hinterland? So for me, going back, if it's a novel about that touches on the geography of my youth, I'll go back constantly. I keep a little caravan on the west coast of Scotland, and I use it as a little kind of laboratory. I go back there, make notes, go out, look at the tidelines, look at the weather, speak to my old friends. I mean, they were sending me memos and emails and listicles of bands they'd loved, things that were said, movie quotes they knew. So the answer to the question is totally. I went back as much as I could, gathered uh, fresh harvests every time I went and brought those notes back and tried to make sense of them, tried to type them up so that by the time you're actually Mm -hmm. writing the book and doing the composition, your head's swirling with a sense of the colour and the weather and the taste of that time. That's what you have to do if you're serious about it.
2: Right, um, I'm going to just ask Christine if she's got any more questions for you because I don't have any up on my screen. Oh, here we are. Um, yeah. Yeah, oh, this is a good question. Um, you've, um, what about the reactions from the people that knew you then and know you now when they read this novel?
3: Well, of course, that's always one of the things that authors uh, who draw on life uh, are concerned about. You know, how will the people who have provided inspiration for the book, or indeed have provided information, feel about it? And it's always a glorious day when you discover that to a woman and a man, they're, they're on the side of the project. And that's what I found with Mayflies. There were no dissenting voices. There were no people who said, oh, it wasn't like that, or you misrepresented me, or, you know, uh, you know the central characters were different from how you portrayed them. And that's allowing for the fact that it is a novel. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I took the license that a writer will take. You know, the ending's different somewhat, the characters' backgrounds sometimes are a bit different. I've put it onto the page in the way that was right for the novel. It worked best for the reader's experience. Mm-hmm. So you're not enslaved to the actuality. Although yeah. you're very yeah. important reporting uh-huh. as much of it as you can. And so that relationship is compli- complicated, especially for people who lived through it with you. So mm. uh, I'm happy to report in this case um, I've got a clean bill of health. And those people, all of whom are so important to me, I mean, we lived through it together. And many of them were very close to the character who inspired the book um, and close to him in a different way. You know, he had a wife, he had a sister, he had, and they have. Um, they have read the book with an open mind and an open heart uh, mm. and uh, they've just loved it. And it's been a great joy to me. It spuds me on through this publication experience to know that we're all in it together.
2: That's great. Look, we're running out of time, sadly. But what I might do, Andrew, is just ask you to give us a wee reading to wide up.
3: Sure. Um, there's a, You know, we've been talking about, about the period in Manchester, and I'd just like to give mm-hmm. you Flavour of that, um, just a page or so, um, where a book's always a novel's always about its writing. It's always about its style, and this is a sense of how I tried to bring all these experiences we've been talking about onto the page. The boys are in this hall at this famous concert that they've been looking forward to for months in Manchester, and they're finally there, watching their favourite band. The band was at its height romantic and wronged and fierce and sublime, with haircuts like agendas. Morrissey came brandishing a license, a whole manner of permission, as if a new kind of belonging could be made from feeling left out, like nobody knew you, as he did. Time takes nothing away from it. Those thousands of heartened teenagers taking the roof off and giving out to a gawky frontman from Stretford. Tully found me and pushed me down to the stage. Over the speakers, the sound was scratchy, but every word and every guitar lick felt like a statement only they could make, and only we could hear those songs rolling from the stage to irrigate our lives. That's what it's all about, Tully said, shouting and kissing me in the cheek as we sang. I could see Limbo, our pal, at the very front, Whirling out of his skin, holding up a smoke and shouting about panic on the streets of Carlisle. Then he was near us and wagging his finger in time to the music. A wonderful look on his face, singing about a vicar, about Joan of Arc and throwing plastic tumblers into the air. Our hair was soaking wet. The Ayrshire boys appeared from all corners of the hall and we hugged and the music soared and it seemed like a huge animation of the things that mattered to us then. Tips and hog, limbo and tully and clogs, the full brass of being. Who knew what time incubated or what life would demonstrate? We were there, beyond navigation, floating through the air. We beamed to the rafters and jumped shoulder to shoulder. And the words we sang were daft and romantic and ripe and British, custom-built for the clear-eyed young.
2: Oh, wow, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. That's, uh, I love that line where about um, how you can discover you can belong by being left out.
3: That's,
2: yeah. That is That's so true. I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm sure everyone's sitting here, reminded of gigs they've been to, what might have been the 1980s, 1960s, 1990s, whatever, but there's something that would have that kind of concept, I think I was
3: surprised in myself when I was working in the book that, you know, a memory of gigs, which are themselves ephemeral, they happen and then mm-hmm. they're gone. You buy the ticket, you have a night out, you have a drink, then it's gone. Mm-hmm. Actually, an event like that, so ephemeral, so passing, so quickly, could become a linchpin in later years for um, loyalty and closeness and trying to work out the end of your life. I even surprised myself. Sometimes as a novelist you do, you trip onto something which actually you discover is very deep-seated in you and might be deep-seated in your readers, but you hadn't really planned for it. And that's a joyous day at the desk when you Mm. just discover that you've actually, you've not so much composed that into being, but it was there waiting for you all the mm.
2: Mm, you don't know what you've got till it's gone, but in a sense, it's still there anyway. Yeah, yes. fantastic. And it has been such a pleasure to talk to you about your wonderful book and, and your wonderful career generally. And uh, I just want to repeat to everyone watching that this is a terrific book. You must, you must buy it now. And you must read it now. You will laugh, you will cry. And as I said, you'll often laugh and cry reading the same sentence. So thank you so Good much. Night and and night to uh, great you. To talk. thank
3: to. you so much for taking the trouble to do this. <laughs> and a lovely experience being able to talk to you. And can I just say to the people watching, I know these are strange times. Many of us are in, a, are in lockdown, we're separated from each other. I'd love nothing more than to be with you all and to be, you know, having a drink at the end of the event. Yeah, We'd love uh, it too. <laughs> looking you right in the eye. But listen, it's marvelous that you took the trouble to turn out for me tonight. And I look forward to seeing you in the future. Chris Gordon and the whole team, thank you so much.
2: Yes, Chris, thank you for me too. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Uh, to you, Jane, and to you, Andrew, I hope you can hear what I'm playing for you, everyone. Yes. I'm in the second. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a tremendous treat. So much love from Australia to you, Andrew. Yes. So much love from Melbourne to you, Jane. Thank Good night, you. everyone. Good night. May we all listen to New Order all Good night. night. <laughs>
0: You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there, you can sign up to our e-news new or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the and nation We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty is never ceded.